Welcome to the Leadership Under the Microscope interview series, Plain Talk by Pragmatic Leaders, a production of JR Global. Today, we continue our series of interviews with innovative leaders from around the world. These episodes convene conversations about their stories and examine the pitfalls, priorities, parameters and pragmatism of being a leader in the global community. Here is your host, J.R. Klein. For 10 years, Sarah Di Carvalho worked with the BBC and Sky in film and television production in California, Sydney, and London. Inspired by the plight of Brazil's street-connected children, Sarah moved to Brazil intent on making a difference. With her Master's of Business Engineering, she founded Happy Child International in 1993, and in 2014, she established a sister charity called It's a Penalty. The campaign harnesses the power of major sporting events to raise awareness and inspire action to prevent the exploitation and abuse of children and vulnerable people. As CEO, she works to influence global legislation for long-term systemic change for child protection. Our guest today, Sarah Di Carvalho. Thank you. Thank you very much. The research that uh, we have done on your uh, program, on your passion, uh, is uh, highlights uh, a lot of very critical issues in today's world. Uh, I would yeah. not probably say that they are unique to today's world, but we have uh, new attention being drawn to them. So I would like to begin this conversation by asking you a little bit about what your story is. Uh, how did you come to this? What were the decisions that you made to get to this place? And uh, what are you doing? So before I moved across to the third sector, um, I worked as a producer of um, television programs for the BBC and then Sky, um, you know, and I, so I had a reasonable high profile and, and, and personal success, but something inside of me said, something inside of me convicted me to take a different path. Um, and there was no script, there was no blueprint, you know, I have to create one. And therefore, the, the risk increased. But if I failed, um, you know, at least I would be I would be doing so having tried. Uh, I, I, I suppose I describe myself as a, as a social entrepreneur. So I um, left my career in India and went uh, to Brazil. Um, and I went to Brazil initially thinking I'd only stay for a month. Um, and I went to Brazil because of the situation in those days um, of, this is 20 year, over 20, 20 years ago now, of, of street children um, living on the streets in Brazil. And when I saw the reality of their situation, my heart broke and my life has never been the same since. Um, and I, over the years, we set up, we've set up 15 projects to rescue and rehabilitate and reintegrate children that are living on the streets, but also from, from poverty, great poverty in the, what they call the favelas, the shanty towns. 
with an emphasis to obviously get them back into school, but also to get them back into their, into their families. And our success rate was quite high. I mean, we, it took a long, took a, you know, there was a lot of trial and error, but I think our success rate was over 70% for reintegration back into family. Um, and that was in part because we worked in collaboration. We worked in partnership, which is key. Um, and, um, and so, uh, you know, when the child was, was reintegrated back into their family, then within that shanty town, there were structures to support that family. Because, of course, when you're working with thousands of children, hundreds and thousands of children and teenagers, you can't follow them all up. So, um, so and, I, and over the years, um, I suppose my leadership role um, in the third sector was, was really the same as my leadership role working in the private sector. Because it was, at the end of the day, it was all about the service delivery. And, you know, I was still a leader of adults, um, you know, working, working across ge ge geographical and cultural boundaries. Um, and, but, but, you know, the service delivery was to, to vulnerable children and their families. Um, and, um, yes, so today, um, the work is 90% of that work is now sustainable, self-sustainable, meaning that is it is locally run and locally funded, which is, which is a challenge and an, an achievement in itself. I'm making it sound easy and it wasn't. <laughs> and so um, that, that, that original charity was called Happy Child or Criança Feliz in Portuguese. And it's our partners in Brazil then went on to set up um, a work in Angola, Africa, where they set up, um, I think, three preschools in Lubango, which is wonderful. And um, here in the UK, where I'm based, um, <clears throat> the remaining, we have a project in the northeast of Brazil for girls that have been abused on, on the streets or in the Shantans who are pregnant. It's very few projects that exist for these girls and that it's tough it's tough to work with these girls and but it's so important because they're having these babies you know in 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 situations either on the streets or you know in desperate poverty so we that project's been running now for about four years um and um they're still being supported by staff in in my office here here in the uk do you want to hear about my passion I have now which is it's a penalty so um, in, nine, in about 2013 um, I, first of all I need to explain having having lived in Brazil for 10 years I, I came um, in 2006 I set up I came back to the UK and I set up um, a, 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 an office here in the UK um, per purposely to raise awareness and um, support, funding support for the work out in Brazil. And, um, but I would visit regularly. And on one of these visits in 2013, I, you know how in life there are moments that happen um, and everything changes for you. And that's what happened to me on this particular visit. I was in the Northeast of Brazil 
<clears throat> and I met, we were at, uh, the place that I have most passion for in this work is really on the front line. So that's one of the things I'd always do is go out on the streets with our street team from the charity, visiting, you know, going where the kids are on the streets, going into those places where they are. And um, on this particular night, because, um, you know, they're out and about at night, we, I was just, I couldn't believe my eyes. There were just this group of young girls, clearly under the age of 18, dressed up to look odd than they were, selling themselves or being sold outside a motel, openly on a main street in Mississippi. And uh, I was with a cameraman at the time. And one of the girls, I, you know, said that she'd chat to us and we had to sort of go out of the way where she could be seen by her trafficker in the motel. <clears throat> and she shared her story with us. She was called Rose. And she told us that um, at the age of 11, she'd been sent to the streets to beg for food because, or money for food because there was no food at home. And pretty soon she'd been caught up with a trafficker and um she was 16 when we met her so five years she'd been on the street um and you know when you look into somebody's eyes because they you know they say that the the eye is the window of the soul and she was dead you know, she was 16 but she was dead inside and she said to me i can take you here and now where they're selling children as young as nine and ten for sex and and, I, and she said, there's no hope for me. But she said, please, will you do something to help us? And the, the, the cameraman had to stop filming. He was crying. And on the plane home, I just felt very convicted by a proverb that says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, the rights of all those who are destitute. And I thought to myself, well, Rose can't speak for herself, but I can speak for people like Rose. And Rose represents millions of children around the world that are in a similar predicament. So when I came back to the UK in 2013, I got in contact with my, my contacts in the media, because as I mentioned earlier, that was my original career. And um, to cut a long story short, the BBC made a, a report um, on the situation in Brazil. And this was the run up to the World Cup, in two, the Football World Cup in 2014, that as you know, Brazil hosted. And around about that time, I, um, after the report went out, I was approached by the Metropolitan Police. It was confidential at the time, but they were setting up bogus websites to try and catch these people before they got there. And um, they, they wanted some information, which we were able to give them. And during one of these meetings in Scotland Yard, they told us about the extraterritorial legislation, which is provisions in law for countries to prosecute their citizens for the abuse of children if it takes place abroad, of which the United States has, has it, and so does the UK, and so does Brazil. So the, they said in this meeting, and the police officer said, if you, if you run a campaign that just raises awareness about the issue in Brazil educates, you know, educates about um, penalties for offenders and equips everyone with mechanisms by which they can report a crime if they see it. They said it will prevent up to 95% from committing the crime because most of them are opportunists. So that's what we did. And we ran a campaign. We got some of the biggest names in football 
British Airways said, you make a film, we'll show it in every flight, which we did. We had a launch here at the centre of the um, child, child protection um, centre here in London. And we got a lot of media coverage because the media were looking for other stories other than football. We partnered with the Brazilian government, who of course, through Happy Child, we'd worked with previously for a long time. And anyway, to cut a long story short, there were two, there were 11,252 calls during the Football World Cup to that number we promoted on our campaign platforms, reporting child abuse and exploitation during the Football World Cup. So after that, everyone was like, well, that was a dress rehearsal. You know, Brazil are about to, to host the Summer Olympics and Paralympics in 2016. Now that's when I set up a separate charity called It's a Penalty. And around about that time, I, I did an MBA um, at Surrey University over two years. And that, I think, I think that really gave me, you know, the sort of confidence to, to, set, to set this other charity, which is very much has a global platform um, on a greater level than Happy Child has. And um, so uh, and we, we were able to get, you know, some significant partners, um, some significant ambassadors, including Usain Bolt. And we, we became part of the sustainability program for the, for the Rio Olympic uh, Committee. Um, and I think the film we shown that year, made that year was shown on nine airlines. Um, and we started to partner hotels. And so it, the work has grown significantly since 2014. We've run it now during seven major global sporting events. And we work with sporting um, governing bodies like the NFL, the IOC, um, the Commonwealth Games Federation. Um, we've run it during the Hong Kong Rugby Seven. So we, we basically what I'm saying is we run it during major global sporting events. The idea is is that you know they provide a platform to get a message that out all over the world. But as well as that, you know, obviously we're aware that during these major sporting events it becomes an issue because where there is an influx of hundreds and thousands of people, there is an increase of, of demand. Um, so that's that's the work I, I do. Very intriguing where you've been, what you've done. It's somewhat redundant uh, to say that there are not, there are challenges in, in your world. Uh, I can just imagine at this scale and with not just this scale of a market, this scale of a problem, that you have uh, a lot of challenges. Uh, be so kind as to tell us a little bit about what some of your biggest challenges are to getting to the heart of your mission. Yeah, I mean, I think, like you were saying, um, there are the same challenges for a CEO in the third sector as a CEO in the private and, and public sectors, like management, you know, strategic plans, budgets, cash flow, marketing. But I think there are probably more challenges faced by the third sector, you know, with the whole idea of sort of fundraising and public perception, you know, the trust of a charity, regulation, um, you know, projects working on, on lean budgets um, with, with, you know, small, when I say small, I, I have a small team, really. We were, I, call, I call us a small giant. I have a team of five. We run these campaigns um, around major global sport events, but those five people 
you know, my team, they are so, um, they're very, they're all different. They all have different skill sets. Uh, and because of that, we work well. Um, and they are very effective in, 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 in what they do. Um, and then what we do is we contract out. So we contract out, you know, website, art and design, production, you know, video production. <clears throat> we contract out PR. We contract out social media. And that way I get a nice mix because I can change, I can change those servers every two years, for example. <clears throat> but um, I, think, I think probably the biggest challenge is, is the fundraising element. <laughs> um, and I think the key is, uh, as with, as with you know, in, the, in the private sector as well, that it's, it is actually all about relationships. And it's a and um, you know I think I think that for us um, in the, in oops, I think for us um, what's vital for us is, is to which we've managed to do um, is to have partners that will go the journey with us. So, for example, we have um, you know we have other. NGOs that partner with us, not only financially, but they can give us, you know, greater impact. For example, in the government, let's say in different countries around the world, we partner with um, airlines. You know, we have airlines like British Airways and American Airlines and, and Cathay Pacific that will work with us regularly. We have hotel chains like, you know, Hilton International and the Radisson Blue Group and Marriott that will work with us. Um, and, uh, you know, but obviously the, the more funding you have, the greater impact you can have. The idea of uh, your challenge being connected not just to the issue, uh, but to the resources that you need to get to the issue, I don't think is really uncommon. Uh, but it is nonetheless a challenge. Uh, so you've been, you've been leading um, an organization uh, since uh, 2014, but I'm believing and assuming that that's not where your leadership journey began, that you've been in leadership roles with, at the BBC and other places that you've been at. Uh, share with us a little bit about some of those leadership lessons, tackle some of those large challenges, some of those leadership lessons that you have learned along your way. Yeah, I think my, my sort of um, key lessons learned um, as far as leadership skills are concerned, is the importance, you know, of creating and forging long-term relationships. Because the new world of work, is, as, as, as you know, is, it's all about the network. Um, uh, and that, that's irrespective of the sector we're working in. You know, today's workplace is all about the network, not just in a technology sense, although it's crucial, but also in the context of people and organizations. So... Um, you know, I think I think a key skill is is forging long term relationships and and sort of moving into you know for me moving into new environments um, with an open mind to cultural shifts because if you think about it with with, with the campaigns that I'm running um, you know it's it's working we, we can work in America um, with the Super Bowls and then we go across for example now I'm just about to go to Tokyo because we're going to set up the campaign during the Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics for next year. 
last year we, we ran it during four major sporting events we ran it during you know the super bowl in minneapolis so that's american culture then we ran it during hong kong rugby sevens asia so that we also ran it during south korea winter games south korea very different culture um and then the commonwealth games in australia so i think it, it's 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 being open-minded uh, to cultural shifts, um, uh, and um, and I think then from a personal perspective, it, it includes the importance of research and planning before starting any project, um, and and having and therefore having measurable outcomes and indicators. You know, we invest time into here in this office in um, developing and producing research mapping reports in order to to really know the right direction to go in. Um, and also I think the importance of teamwork. It's very important for me to create an atmosphere where people are, want to come to work, you know, where they're happy to, to work and therefore work hard. And I think it's using, I think it's, it's using today, it's about all about soft skills, um, especially where there is a conflict. Um, and I also think for me as a leader, I have an open door. I think it's very important that everybody feels listened to because I think that's where you develop as a person. You know, it's about empowering, um, empowering, making you feel empowered, focusing on your strengths because we all have strengths and weaknesses. But where it, it doesn't help is where, you're, where you're, a leader focuses on your weakness. So let's focus on your strength. And that way you will develop as a person. Because I think one of the things I've learned as a leader is it's okay to say, actually, that's not my skill set. My, my strength isn't that. My strength is this. Your strength is that. And you, that's okay to say that to yourself. I mean, I have staff members, you know, who have, you know, um, strengths that I don't, that I don't have. Um, so I think that's, that's very freeing as a leader. Um, you know, to, in other words, to, you know, to, yes, like I said, just to focus on strengths rather than weaknesses. And, you know, it's identifying our competencies and focusing on them. And the other thing is I'd like to say, because I, I also do some mentoring on the MBA course. Um, and one of the things that comes up time and time and again is the importance of work-life balance. And I think, I think that's key also because there's so much pressure today in the workplace to put in long hours and to produce, you know, um, and the bottom line. And, you know, I think we are also becoming more and more aware about mental health. Um, and I think it's important that as a, as a leader, you set a precedence to make sure that everyone, you know, to make sure your team have that work-life balance and that you're seen to have it as well you know for example i take a wednesday afternoon off a month to go and do an art class art is my hobby and i think it's good for my team to see that i also have flexibility for them working from home sometimes sometimes people can get more done so i think i think that the you know the importance you know it's a big challenge but i think the importance of work-life balance is, is key as well. Great stuff. You know, these are lessons that are replicable uh, in a lot of a lot of different areas. So let's, I'd like you to drill down into that just a little bit more. I'm interested to hear you 
thinking around sort of your approach, uh, your style and leadership that uh, kind of, um, how do you see your role as being a leader? I suppose I've just touched on that really. My role in being a leader, I'm a visionary. <laughs> I'm a social entrepreneur. So to work with me, you have to have high appetite of risk. Not everyone has that. Um, my board has to have a high appetite of risk. But then I think there has to be balance. There has to be balance on a board and there has to be balance in the team. So in my, my team members, not all of them have that. But what everyone learns to do is to sort of, I think, I think they've learned trust. It's trust, isn't it? It's building up trust. I think trust is very important. And trust comes from respect and that your actions meet your word and vice versa. So um, I, think that's, I think that's very important. I think, you know, we're all different personalities. You know, I, I, I do what I do. I have, I'm a natural leader. I'm, I have been since school. You know, it's just, I think we all have leadership qualities, but some people find they can naturally lead. I'm somebody who um, I will listen to everybody's opinion. I think it's very important. I mean, I, we're, we're a team of five, but often my team is way bigger than that because what happens is, is that when, I, when I'm running, uh, when we're running a campaign, let's say like we are in Tokyo, um, we will partner with an NGO in Tokyo that then represents us. So I'm immediately coordinating and leading them in this vision for its penalty. Um, and the same then goes with the hotels and the training, of you know, the training to spot human trafficking. So you're suddenly, you've suddenly, there's a huge collaboration. So you've got, I'm managing my team, that, but then I'm also managing what's going on in that country. You know, it's the airlines, it's, the, it's what's happening at the airports, it's what's happening, um, you know, the training of taxi drivers and who's going to be doing that and what NGOs on the ground are able to provide that. Um, and then you're coordinating with the hotels and the training of staff to spot human trafficking. And then you're also coordinating with the host committee. So it is, it is I think, uh, as a leader, I am naturally, I think, a facilitator. I'm somebody who, I'm action, and I like to drive things. But then I need to surround myself with people that, could, that can do things that I can't. You know, so, it, it, you know, I have somebody who's a campaign director who's very strong on, on art and design and video and vision. And, and then I have somebody else who's very strong on research and advocacy, you know. So I think, I think as a leader, as again, as I said, I think I've said earlier, it's important to know your strengths and weaknesses as a leader. And it's okay to say, actually, that's not my strength. So, um, yeah, so I think for me, it's the ability to... To see, and, I, and I'm a great person. To, I, I like to check and double check. I, I won't micromanage, but I have to be on top of everything. You know, you've got the vision, you've got the strategy. You've got to be open to the fact that that might change. You know, you're constantly reviewing your budgets. Um, and then obviously, not only that, but I, I've also got to make sure that we've got, we've got enough money coming in. So I think as a leader, it's having your finger on, on, on all the buttons but at the same time it's providing an atmosphere where everybody feels empowered and listened to it's very interesting this whole idea of delegating and validating uh, you know you, you you delegate what needs to be done but if you don't watch it 
It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get done. I don't care how it's done. It needs to get the product is what you're working for. Now, uh, Sarah, I'd like to take you to the next place. You'd like to think that it's as easy as uh, putting a quid in the, in the slot and picking out which soft drink you want, pressing the button, and, and bang, there it is. But the reality of that doesn't work quite like that. So what what remains to be done in your world? You know, I, I would imagine that's probably a program all by itself because it would seem to me that just uh, my limited uh, worldview, this is an area that, that we are just getting to be aware of, uh, much less address. Yeah. I think uh, even though a lot of times this is a, it's an issue that has been a millennium, we're at a place now where you're talking about doing events and doing uh, awareness and on-the-ground uh, work all over the world. Tell me a little bit about what sort of remains to be done in your world. What, what, do you, what more do you need to do before you get to your objective or, or yeah. fulfill your passion or whatever that is? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, um, to really complement campaign and for long-term systematic change for child protection, um, I mentioned this legislation, the extraterritorial legislation, and um, our research, we've, we've completed a, a research mapping report recently um, following um, the campaign we ran during the Commonwealth Games in, in Australia. And that shows that of the 53 countries in the Commonwealth, only 13 countries had this legislation. So we've launched an exciting project um, just, just last week in the Cyprus High Commission, with a lot of the high commissioners from those countries, from those um, 53 countries, um, sorry, you know, from the countries that don't have the legislation, together with UNICEF, together with World Vision, um, and together with the Royal Commonwealth Society, who, who we're partnering with, who can bring the heads of state around the table. Um, and also we're partnering with Thomson Reuters, whose CSR, part of their CSR is something called Trust Law. And in 180 countries, they have law firms and solicitors that will give their time pro bono to such a project as this. And the idea is that we see uh, as many of those countries in the Commonwealth that don't have that legislation, enact that legislation and implement that legislation over the next four years. So that's sort of my next big, hairy, audacious goal, I think. What an intriguing insightful and poignant conversation. I'm going to uh, put you on the spot one more time. And if, if you would have something to say, sort of in summary and conclusion, to a new leader that are emerging or leaders which may have some awareness in, in this area or just have some interest, do you have some final thoughts or message that you'd like to give to, this, to these folks? Yeah, I think in whatever you're going to do, whatever work, whether you're going into the, you know, the private or public sector, you know, you can make a difference um, socially as well. And I think the new generation are a lot more, you know, socially aware um, than we were, than I was. Um, but I think also it's remembering that, you know, today we live in the age of digital, what I call digital disruption. You know, so for example, you know, Airbnb is, is the largest accommodation provider in the world, but own no hotels. Uber is the largest, one of the largest taxi companies in the world, and they own no taxis. You know, Amazon is one of the largest kind of online traders, but owns no shops. 
and you know Skype. You can go on about Skype. You know the impactful tele- telecommunications owns no stru- no network structure. <clears throat> Facebook, you know, largest community in the world, but doesn't own any any houses or villages. It, and then similarly, it's a penalty. What we do, I think, as I've explained, you know, we're a global campaign protecting children and vulnerable people from exploitation and trafficking all over the world, you know, around major global sporting events. And we've impacted, we impact on average 155 million people per campaign. Um, And yet, you know, we're we're a small giant, but we were able to do that because because of the digital disruption. Does Does that make sense? So don't limit, don't limit yourself. You know, because today, um, you know, the world as as, as we know it has changed. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Plain Talk by Pragmatic Leaders. J.R. Klein is an Oxford-published author, speaker and global business consultant. J.R. Global specialises in socially responsible business consulting. To learn more, visit jrglobal.co. Thank you for listening.